0: If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn them to John chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this afternoon. And I know last week I quoted a rapper, and I'm going to do it again this week. And then uh, next week I'll get back to quoting Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash like you expect from me. But Lil Wayne, you guys probably know who Lil Wayne is. Tattoos on his face, weird voice. Years ago, I remember reading a Rolling Stone interview with Lil Wayne. And he was interviewed actually right after he had been released from a stint in prison. And so this was kind of the exclusive interview of Lil Wayne after he had gotten out of jail. And the interviewer asked him what he did. What did you do while you were in prison? He said, well, I basically did two things while I was incarcerated. First, he said, I played Uno a lot. And he said, I was so good that by the time of my sentence, nobody would play me an Uno anymore. So we know that about Lil Wayne. He's a good Uno player. But the second thing he said is he said that he read his entire Bible cover to cover. And the interviewer asked, well, what did you think of the Bible? And Lil Wayne said this. He said, it was deep. I liked the parts where some character was once one thing, but he ended up becoming another thing entirely. Like he'd be dissing Jesus one minute, and then he ends up being a saint. He said, I thought that was cool. That's actually very profound insight from Lil Wayne. Because Lil Wayne recognized a central theme of the scriptures that's important for all of us to understand, and that is that the scriptures are chock full of people who were once one thing, one type of person on one type of path, but then they met a man named Jesus of Nazareth. And something changed within them when they met Jesus. Something happened, new life, total transformation, new birth. This is a theme that is all throughout the scriptures. We are once one thing, but then we become something else entirely. And today we see how this new life, this new birth happens. We're looking today at the story of Nicodemus and his encounter with Jesus in John chapter three. Look at what it says in verse one. It says, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So this is Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. And so let's talk a little bit. Uh, Who is Nicodemus? Who is this guy? What type of person is he? Uh, He was, it says, a man of the Pharisees. That's the first thing we find out about him. And the Pharisees were an elite group of religious and political leaders among the Jewish people. And so to be a Pharisee meant that he had essentially memorized the entire Hebrew Bible, which is what we call the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. He knew it all. He was a student of the Bible. He also had taken a blood oath to obey the Ten Commandments to the letter. And he, we get the sense that he was probably pretty good at it. He was probably a good guy because he was being recognized and given a privileged position because of how well he did these things. So we also see, though, not only was he a Pharisee, but it says he was a ruler of the Jews. Now, this likely means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was, there were 6,000 Pharisees, and the Sanhedrin was the 70 most elite Pharisees. It was the most well-respected, the most powerful of the Pharisees, and the Sanhedrin had religious and legal jurisdiction over every Jew on earth. He was considered, this is what we know about Nicodemus, he was considered a good man, he was well-behaved, he was well-educated, he was well-respected, he was very powerful, and we know from other accounts in the Gospels that he was very wealthy, He had everything that anybody could have ever wanted in that time, in that age and time. And he was the type of person that everyone wished they could be. I mean, he was the man. But another thing to note about Nicodemus is that he was curious about who Jesus was. You know, most Pharisees were intimidated or they were frustrated by Jesus. or so Jesus just got under their skin. I mean, you, we, we see this all throughout the scriptures. The Pharisees, they just, Jesus just makes them, he, they, he makes them angry. But Nicodemus, he doesn't get angry with Jesus. He, he, he's curious about Jesus. He wants to know more about Jesus. He doesn't, he, he doesn't feel undermined, like his authority is being undermined by Jesus. He's like, I, I want to know more about this guy. And you think that Nicodemus had probably, he had probably heard about Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding in Cana. He had certainly uh, heard about all these many people that were beginning to follow Jesus. He had heard of the miracles that Jesus had been doing around Jerusalem. He definitely knew about Jesus flipping over the tables. He knew about all this stuff. But instead of feeling threatened by Jesus, like the other religious leaders did, he wanted to know more. And so what we need to know about Nicodemus right off the bat is basically this. He was very rich. He was very powerful, very successful, very religious. He was very good. But he was also a seeker. He wanted to know the truth. He wanted to know more about who Jesus was. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi. We know that you're a good teacher. Now, a lot of people, there's a lot of thoughts about what he's saying there. But uh, whether he is making a statement about what he believes Jesus to be, whether he's just being polite, Jesus doesn't let him waste any time on the introductions. Jesus doesn't waste any time on the niceties. Jesus goes straight to the point. Look at verse 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So here's what Jesus says to Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again or you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, Jesus says, you do not enter the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God because of who your parents are. You cannot enter the kingdom of God because you've memorized your Bible. You cannot enter the kingdom of God because you have status, or because you have wealth, or because you have privilege, or because you wear a funny uniform because you're a Pharisee or whatever. You cannot enter the kingdom of God because you've obeyed the 10 commandments. You cannot enter the kingdom of God because you've been some level of awesome and been recognized for it. You cannot enter the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, unless you have been born again, unless you've been given new life. And on one level, I bet this shocked Nicodemus. Verse 7 says he marveled. I get the picture of him just like jaw on the ground like what? Jesus, what are you saying? I've been doing all these things my whole life as a way to serve God, as a way to honor God. My intentions have been good. I've been seeking God. I've been seeking to honor God. It's why I studied my Bible so hard. It's why I've worked so diligently to obey the commandments. But you're saying I've got to start over? You're saying I've got to be born again? What does that even mean? Now, I just want to stop here, and I want us to consider something. Think about this. In the minds of a first-century Jewish person, Nicodemus had it all. I mean, Nicodemus had the life that everybody would want to live. So why was he sneaking around at night seeking answers from Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus wasn't a Pharisee. He certainly wasn't a member of the Sanhedrin. He was just a carpenter's son from Nazareth, people thought. What could Nicodemus, the great Nicodemus, what could he possibly need from Jesus? Here's what I think. I think Nicodemus did have it all. And I think he was well recognized for his religious commitments, and he was well respected, and he was given privilege and authority and power. But I also think that deep down... He knew something in his life was missing. His religious achievements, his social achievements, his wealth, those things weren't fulfilling him like he expected. Maybe Nicodemus was thinking, I've got it all. Why do I crave something more? Why do I still feel like something is missing. Perhaps Nicodemus had seen and heard people like Andrew and Peter and Nathaniel and Philip, who we studied a couple of weeks ago, people who had regular Joes, people who had come in contact with Jesus. And now they had a joy of fullness that Nicodemus could not figure out why or how. These are just regular people. How can they have so much joy And maybe Nicodemus thought to himself, I have more and I have accomplished more than all of these people, so why do they seem to have more joy and more more fulfillment than I possess? I think maybe that's why Nicodemus approached Jesus that night. Now, I know many of you, most of you are aware that in a couple of hours, the Super Bowl is going to start. And the big story tonight is that Tom Brady is 43 years old and he's playing in his 10th Super Bowl. Now, Tom Brady is worth over $200 million. Most people believe that he is the best quarterback to ever play the game of football. He is very handsome. He is married to a supermodel who, by the way, is worth twice as much as he is. So put them together. They're worth $600 million. He has the life that we all wish we could have. He lives in sunny Florida too. He's in Tampa Bay right now, which is much better. They probably got better weather than we have right now. Surely we would think a guy like Tom Brady, supermodel wife, hundreds of millions of dollars. He plays quarterback. He's playing for the Super Bowl. He's got rings. He's got trophies. Surely we would think he is fully satisfied in this life. And all the problems that you and me, that we kind of walk around in our little normal everyday lives, surely he doesn't have the emptiness and the longings that we have because he's got it all. Well, years ago, Tom Brady was interviewed on 60 Minutes. And this is what he said. He said, why do I have all these Super Bowl rings and still think there's got to be something greater out there for me? I mean, a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is all about. I reached my goal, my dream, my life, but me, I think. And if you've ever seen the interview, he almost cracks a tear. He says, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. Tom Brady says that. And Steve Croft, the reporter, said, "Well, well, Tom, what do you think the answer is? He said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I love playing football and I love being quarterback for this team. But at the same time, I think there are a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. Tom Brady, the man who has it all, is still seeking something that will satisfy. Nicodemus, the man who had it all, is still seeking after Jesus, looking for an answer, looking for more something to satisfy his soul. And Jesus tells Nicodemus the same thing that I think he would say to Tom Brady and I think the same thing that he would say to you and to me today. He said, you've got to be born again. You must experience the new life that I offer if you want to really experience abundant life and fullness. And so the question then goes, well, okay, well, how do we experience this new life? Nicodemus, he said, how can I enter into my mother's womb a second time. That's impossible. And Jesus says, you must be born of water and you must be born of spirit. Now, what do those things mean? What does it mean to be born of water? Remember at that moment in time, John the Baptist was causing quite a commotion by baptizing people out in the wilderness. And John the Baptist's baptism was an outward symbol of the people that were being baptized. It was an outward symbol of their inner repentance so when Jesus kind of throws a call back to John the Baptist and says, you must be born of water, he's saying, you must repent. Jesus is saying that new life begins first with repentance. And I know that that's a scary word. Repentance, ooh, you know, repent. You know, we all think of street preachers in Washington Square Park. You know, repent, your, you know, your skirt is too short or, you know, whatever. Like we think of those guys standing on literal soapboxes shouting at people. And and that makes us nervous. We feel like that's, you know, we don't want any part of that. But repentance, take that out of your mind. Repentance is this. It's it's a change of mind and a change of action. It's recognizing that what you are currently doing, the life you are currently living, the path you are currently walking is not one that actually leads to the life you crave. So you recognize this and you say, there's got to be something more. I'm going to walk in a different direction. So I'll give you an example of repentance from my own life. Um, uh, I graduated high school around the time that the World Series of Poker was like super. Remember how popular it used to be on ESPN? Everybody was watching World Series of Poker back then. It was around the time that the movie Rounders came out. You guys remember this? John Malkovich, uh, Matt Damon. Uh, And so I got really into Texas Hold'em poker at this time, like really into it. Watched it on TV, played it with my friends almost every night. Small bet games, you know, $10 here or there. But when I got to college my freshman year, I started getting invited to some games where there were a little bit higher stakes, like pretty shady stuff, like basement of fraternity houses kind of shady stuff. It was, you know. And I became a pretty good player. And I won some games here and there, made a little bit of money. I started getting into gambling. And I thought this was a good path to be on, you know. What could go wrong, I thought. Well, one night, I decided, I thought, you know, I'm pretty good at playing people in poker. I'm going to try this online poker. Party poker was real big at that time, if you guys remember that. And so I decided to try my hand at online poker. So uh, party poker required $200 for you to start. And so I ponied up $200. I think I'm going to make some money tonight. And the way party poker worked is if you were out of a hand, you could then play other little gambling games down in the, while you were waiting for the next hand. And so I would, I would fold a hand, and then I would start playing blackjack down in the bottom right-hand corner of my screen, and within just a few minutes, all $200 was gone. And I thought, okay, 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 I'm going to win my money back. So I put another $200 on my card back onto the game, and I thought I would try to win it back, and I lost it. So in 20 minutes, I lost $400. That's a lot of money for anybody at any time. But for a college kid back then, that was more than what I had. And in an instant, I remember sitting there with my laptop in my lap, sitting on the couch, just stunned. And my eyes were opened. And I realized in that moment that gambling, I was like, this is not a path I want to be on. This is not something I want to do anymore. And my eyes in that moment were opened. I said, I don't want to do this anymore. And immediately I closed out my account, settled my debts, and I have not played a game of poker using real money at least. I might do it, you know, on the apps, on the phone or whatever since then. Now, I, I often will thank God. I'm like, God, thank you that I lost $400 that night because a, a, an addiction could have, it could have been a lot more down the road. But, but to this day, I've not been tempted to gamble again ever. I mean, you could not convince me to go gambling right now because I know the feeling of losing it all. You see, I was going in one direction. Something happened in my life that made me recognize that I don't want to go that direction anymore. I stopped, I had a change of mind, and then I had a change of action. I went a completely different direction. That is what repentance is. You, you have a change of mind and then a change of action. And what that looks like on a grander spiritual scale spiritual scale is this, when you recognize That whatever you are seeking for ultimate joy and meaning and satisfaction, when you recognize that it does not give you what it promises. Look, career is a good thing. But a lot of people move to New York thinking that if I succeed in this industry, then I will be fulfilled. And what happens is so many people achieve their dreams in their city and they go, surely that can't be all it is. And repentance is recognizing, okay, saying to yourself, you know what? Maybe career's a good thing, but I should stop seeking my life in this thing. Maybe, it's, maybe life is found somewhere else. You see, for Nicodemus, it meant that if he wanted to experience new birth, he would have to recognize that his status, wealth, privilege, and religiosity could not give his life ultimate meaning and ultimate satisfaction. It could not take away the feelings of guilt and shame. I mean, you guys ever been there, you, you, you accomplish your goals, you get a raise at work, and then you come home and you, you still feel the same shame, still feel the same guilt? I think Nicodemus recognized this. He's like, man, look at I'm a Pharisee. I am the man, the equivalent of Super Bowls and championships. And, but that can't take away feelings of guilt and shame. And nothing you can do, no status, no wealth, no privilege can secure God's favor. And none of those things can give you the promise of eternal life. And so repentance for Nicodemus meant that he would need to recognize this and then turn his life and point his life in a different direction. You see, new birth, new life begins with repentance. But it isn't repentance alone that gives us life. We need something else. We need to be born of the Spirit. Now, how does that happen? By faith. Jesus tells Nicodemus, he's, Nicodemus is confused. He's like, what in the world? Like, what, how do I be born of the Spirit? How can I, how can I experience this? And look at what Jesus says to Nicodemus. He says in verse 14, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. We'll get to that in a moment. He says that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world. All right, I know most of you have heard this verse a billion times before. Don't let it fly over you right now. Listen to the words of this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So Nicodemus, he knew the Old Testament really well. He had studied it. That was his job. So Jesus mentions a story that he would have been very familiar with. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Now this, come, this is a reference to the book of Numbers chapter 21. It's February, so you guys should probably be getting close to Numbers in your Bible reading plan. And it's, this, num- Numbers 21 is awesome. So God is leading the people of Israel into the promised land. Uh, he's in they're in the wilderness he's leading them into the promised land but they begin to grow impatient because they've been in the wilderness for so long and they wondered why is it taking so long when are we going to get to the promised land and they began to doubt god and they began to complain about god and they began to worship other gods and they started going trying to find other things other than god to satisfy themselves <clears throat> but then in the desert one day they're attacked by a pit of serpents and the serpents bite everyone. The people are screaming, there's all this commotion, they're in pain, and they are all dying from the poisonous venom that is running through their veins. So just think of the scene. <clears throat> think of the scene of all these people in the desert. And I mean, they've just been bit by serpents, they're all on the ground, they're all rolling around, writhing in pain, and they're thinking, "This is it. We're, this is what we're done for. This is it. The, the, the venom is coursing through their veins. And like, what, how can they get out of this situation? There's no way they can save themselves. So God in his mercy tells Moses, make a bronze serpent. Put it on a pole on top of a hill and lift it high for everyone to see. And God tells the people that if they will simply look up and fix their eyes onto the bronze serpent, they will be healed from the deadly effect of the venom. And the people look up And they're healed. And Jesus says, in the same way, Nicodemus, you've heard this story many times, in the same way, though, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. So Nicodemus knew this story. And Jesus is telling him, Nicodemus, I'm the bronze serpent just like that bronze serpent became the symbol of the thing that was killing them, and just like that bronze serpent was lifted up on a hill for people to see, and just as the people looked to that bronze serpent and found life and healing and new birth, so I will be lifted up. I will become, I will, your sin, the thing that is killing you will be placed on me. I will be placed high up on a hill, on a tree, and those who look on me will find life. Jesus is trying to tell Nicodemus look you've got a poison that is killing you it's called sin and you are helpless to save yourself from it but i am going to be lifted up on a cross Jesus says and all who look on me will be healed and will be given new life see the israelites in this moment they were facing death but if they looked up on the bronze serpent lifted up for them they would have life look and live in Nicodemus, we get the sense, we, we find out later in the Gospels that at Jesus' death, we find out that Nicodemus took this step of faith. He became a follower of Jesus, and his life was completely changed and transformed. The life of, that Jesus gave him was clearly better than all of the success that he had experienced. But what does this passage say to you and to me? John 3.16 says that because God loves us, for God so loved the world. Other translations say because God loved the world, he did so in this way. He sent Jesus who takes on our pain and our sin, is placed on a cross and is lifted up. And we're told that all who will put their faith and their eyes and their affection and their hearts and their trust on the one who is lifted up for us, We will live. He gave His only Son, and whoever believes in Him will have eternal life, will have life, will have everlasting life. You must be born of water. You have to repent. You have to recognize that the path you are on isn't fulfilling you the way you thought or hoped it would. That's repentance, recognizing. But once you've recognized that, you have to look to the thing that will fulfill you and the thing that will satisfy and the thing that will heal, and that is Jesus. So one year ago... Yesterday, I was on the floor of my apartment after about a week and a half of flu-like symptoms that had gotten worse and worse and worse and worse. Symptoms that I had tried to manage with vitamins and Tylenol and over-the-counter drugs, but I could not, no matter how hard I try, I could not heal myself. And so a year ago yesterday, I was on the floor of my apartment writhing in pain, in so much pain that I went to my doctor who revealed to me that my my resting heart rate was over 100 beats per minute. It's normally about 40 beats. And my blood pressure on that day was 85 over 56. My doctor said, "Will, you need to get to the ER right now." He said, "You look toxic and you are showing signs of septic shock." In other words, he said, "Will, you're dying and you need to get to the ER immediately." See, that doctor, he, I recognized that I was, in, I, I was helpless. And something was killing me. It was overtaking my body. And I tried and tried and tried to take care of it in my own ability. I tried to buy the right drugs. from the, I, I tried to self-medicate and self-diagnose. And I could not. I was helpless to save myself. I recognized the problem. And so I went to my doctor and put my faith in him. And I, I put my life in his hands. And he diagnosed my problem, sent me to the ER, into the hands of doctors who could save me and give me my life back. You see, I, I, I put my faith in my doctors and they healed me and they gave me new life. As you can imagine, that was a scary time for me, a scary time for my family. I'm glad to be here. And I'm grateful for a church that really cared for me during that time. But that's not the point I'm trying to say. The point is this. I want you to hear this today. When it comes to your spiritual life, we are all plagued with something that is killing us. You feel it. It's the shame, it's the guilt, it's the emptiness, it's the loneliness, that nothing, you can try to medicate it with all sorts of things, but you know you can't fix it yourself. We are all plagued with something that is killing us, and it's called sin. And the Bible says that our sin separates us from God, and that in itself is, is a kind of death. And there's nothing we can do to solve this problem. Church attendance can't solve it. Bible knowledge can't solve it. Prestigious grad program that you want to get into can't solve it. High-profile job can't solve it. Big salary can't solve it. Success, status, wealth, relationships, more kids, a nice apartment, uh, whatever. None of those things. House in the suburbs, none of those things can solve it. We cannot solve our sin, and nothing we can do can take away the feelings of emptiness and those feelings of there's got to be more than this. When we recognize this, when we recognize that we are helpless to to medicate and to heal ourselves, that's called repentance. That's the first step of repentance, it's a recognition. When we stop looking to those things to heal our loneliness or our emptiness, that is a recognition of what is killing us. But then faith is when we look to the one who can heal the one who can give meaning to our lives, the one who can give life to us, the one who can lift those feelings of guilt and shame, the one who can give feelings of identity and worth and joy and meaning into our lives. When you look to him, when you place your faith in him, he promises that he will heal your sin, he will give you new life, and that is a life that is abundant, is full, and is eternal. And whether you never win a Super Bowl or whether you never get the job that you want, you can still be satisfied because Jesus, has given you life for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life this is the message of the gospel this is the message of hope do you believe in him and will you believe in him let me pray for you crossroads father we thank you for your mercy and for your grace God, what you told Nicodemus 2,000 years ago is just as true today. That you loved us so much that you sent your son. He lived a life we could never live and he died the death that we deserve in our place so that all who will look on him, doesn't matter what we've done, doesn't matter our past, doesn't matter the shame or the guilt that we're carrying, it doesn't matter what level of whatever is in our lives, if we will look to Him, all whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. So God, would you give us the faith to believe today? And it's in your name I pray. Amen.